it's, uh, it's interesting, uh, this, this letter that we're working through, um, because we've been kind of breaking up into these little kind of uh, sections as we go, which is just wonderful because we've been digging in and kind of exploring uh, some really interesting nuance in this letter that Peter wrote. Um, but at the same time, uh, it's part of something that is far bigger. You kind of have to read the letter as a whole and also read its individual parts. Um, and so even as I was preparing tonight, I, uh, I know that there is so much more that will be left unsaid here. And so I trust that Mike Boland's going to pick it up uh, next week as well. Um, but I do want to uh, start uh, this little part of this letter with a, with a recognition and kind of a return to what this letter is or who this letter is directed to. Again, we've got um, these people uh, who are over there in Asia Minor who are in a position uh, as followers of Jesus where they essentially are experiencing life as a foreigner. It's like this is not where they're considered, uh, where they consider to be home. Uh, from what we can get a sense of, there was some form of kind of persecution, some kind of suffering. Maybe they were experiencing some sort of hostility and harassment. Um, at, the, at the time, uh, there was obviously a lot of kind of pagan worship going on. And at the same time, maybe even those people that they would identify with a little bit more closely uh, within the Jewish faith would have also rejected them um, because a lot of the, the Jewish expression of faith at the time in these particular areas was ultra-conservative as well. And so there wasn't this kind of margin uh, to accept those who may even have a slightly different belief system. And so you've got these people who are feeling very, very isolated and very, very different. And what Peter is trying to do is he's trying to encourage them in the midst of these times. And, uh, and as I said when I commenced this series, sometimes it can be hard to truly identify with uh, the audience that Peter was writing to. Because we have a relative level of comfort. I mean, we sit within a, even a church here on a Sunday and there's enough familiarity that we feel comfortable. We might enter our workplace and maybe we, we seem a bit distinctive. Maybe the fact that we're a Christian is something unique. Uh, but generally, I would say, uh, there, while there is sometimes animosity toward Christians, for the most part, we kind of live within an era where generally a lot of belief systems are accepted. Uh, and so there is kind of a high sense of tolerance, right, that maybe works in our favour. I don't know whether that's actually true or not. But nevertheless, the experience of what it feels like to be a foreigner can be, ironically, quite foreign to us, right? And so I'm really aware of that as we kind of engage with this text, um, where you might not actually here in Alice Springs feel as different as maybe they did. But I don't want to be naive to, to say that there isn't types of suffering that we experience as a result of life and maybe even expression of our faith. Now, we all know that there are different kinds of suffering. We've got consequential suffering. I do something wrong and there's a consequence for that, right? And so I suffer a bit. And usually I'm like, okay, I understand that I did the wrong thing and, and I'm experiencing that consequence. Sometimes there's incidental suffering. I don't do anything. I just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time and something happens to me. This external force occurs to me and I just find myself there in the middle. There is kind of relational suffering that, again, sometimes is a result of, of hostility and, and lack of forgiveness. And sometimes we, we have, feels like we have fairly little uh, to, to do with the situation, but it kind of is directed to, towards us. Uh, and, of course, there is suffering that is also systemic suffering. 
people who have been making decisions over and over time, choosing selfishness, that have built these systems of oppression uh, and, and poverty. And so we sometimes find ourselves subject to these kind of systemic pressures, right, that result in a type of suffering, not because of one particular decision, but because of decisions that have been made over and over and over again. And so suffering is not something that is unfamiliar to us, even within our context that is relatively cushy. But regardless of the type of suffering that we experience, we all know that it does shape us. We all know that it can so easily affect our heart. It can so easily make us feel alone. And so this particular idea is what Peter speaks to in the passage we're going to look at today. And so if you've got your Bible, feel free to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to be doing verses 8 through to 12 tonight. Um, and, uh, and then we'll kind of see where we go. He says this, finally, all of you. Now, I've got to stop there. Remembering that prior to this, he's just spoken to slaves, then he's spoken to wives, and then he's spoken to husbands. That's where we're coming from. If you didn't catch up in the last couple of weeks, he's kind of talking to these specific people groups and saying the expression of your faith in this context could look like this, if you're a slave, if you're a wife, if you're a husband. So now he's going, finally, all of you. So he's going to break all the categories and say, everyone, all of you, hear this. Be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but on the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For, and he quotes, whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So again, you've got uh, this letter that is being written uh, to these recipients who are experiencing hostility and harassment, Right? And they're operating under questionable authorities, right? So there's these authorities and powers of the time that, that maybe don't always operate consistently with the expression of their faith, but they are experiencing this as a foreign and marginalised people. And suddenly you've got Peter speaking to these people who are feeling a sense of suffering and oppression and isolation, and he's giving them, I suppose, some advice, not just for one particular group, but for all of them. And he picks up these kind of phrases that could so easily be turned into a list of do this statements. Be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. And, you know, don't repay evil with evil, on the contrary, repay evil with a blessing. Right? Now all of these characteristics would certainly make a people who are marginalised and oppressed, um, it would certainly make them distinctive. It would make them missional. They would look different to the world. Uh, the world, And all of these things, in some respects, have been unpacked over the previous few weeks as we've gone through the letter. Um, you know, if, if the church, if the people of faith were like-minded and all sympathetic and, and if they were loving each other, if they were compassionate and humble and if they were repaying evil with blessing, I mean, let's think about it, church. How could we not look different, right? Because this is not what the world looks like. And so Peter has a point. 
He's saying in the midst of this feeling of suffrage, be like this because you've still got a missional mandate. You've still got something to do. And I could easily do a sermon with parallels to Paul, you know, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, Romans 12. And we could go through each one of these characteristics to help us navigate and heal through hostility that's directed toward us. That would be a good sermon. (laughs) That would be a totally fine sermon. We could find common ground, like-minded, you know, identify the other person, you know, sympathy, be teachable. You know, it's great stuff. We could go through dot by dot and be like, hey, these things are going to contribute to healing and, and they will. That's great. But the truth is, when we suffer, some of us aren't ready to do that stuff. <laughs> because we are still, I'm going to say hot, if that makes you feel good. We're hot. That's what you want to hear at church. Come into church and, tell, and be told that you're hot. But you know, we're still, there is still heat there. There is still pain there. There is still turmoil within us. And so we see a list of, like this when we're feeling like a foreigner, we're feeling isolated and we're feeling like the world is against us. And we see this list and we're like, seriously? Like, you expect me to do that? We want to be able to do those things. That's fine. But right now, in this moment, as I'm experiencing injustice, as I'm feeling like I'm on the margins, that just seems so far away right now. You know, people sometimes use this kind of phrase, you know, do the right thing and all will go well. Like that can kind of be a bit of a philosophy, right? Which can be true, but it's not always true. Yes, wisdom avoids many, many pitfalls, but sometimes you just suffer, not because of your own decisions, but because of systemic injustice or because of the fact you found yourself in an incidental moment where things haven't worked out. I know that there's been times, I'm sure you've had times, where you've tried to do the right thing. You've genuinely tried to do everything you could in your power to show dignity and honesty and generosity towards others, only to have it kind of thrown back in your face. And I've experienced that from time to time. And you know what I feel in that moment? I feel so hot. I'm like, seriously? Like, I have done everything that I could muster for this. And yet at the same time, here I am suffering. And sometimes that is where we start. And I know I'm not alone in that. There are wonderful well-meaning people here and beyond here who give and give and give and yet at the same time don't always reap the rewards of that. And this is why, and if you've ever worked with people in the midst of suffering, you know that this is true. The truth is that when we suffer, our need for solidarity, that is the need to know that I am not alone, will always surpass our need for answers. Now, it's not that we don't want answers. Answers sometimes will come in time. Sometimes we never get the answers. But in that initial moment when we feel that ping of injustice, like we are a foreigner, we are not respected, what we want to know is that we are not alone. Rarely do we want answers and next steps and lists of things to do as Christians to make it all better. We just want to know that we are not the only one who has experienced this. And so this passage can be treated like the latter, that is, answers and things that we can do to move forward, and hopefully Mike will talk about that a bit next week. But I believe that this particular part of this passage is far more profound in the former part, the solidarity piece. Remembering that this letter from Peter is deeply pastoral. This isn't the kind of 
you know, fiery Peter of his younger years, chopping off ears of servants and jumping into the water. Well, he might still do that, I don't know. But what we read here in Peter is a much more mature, grounded, experienced church leader who knows the complexities of expression of faith. It's deeply, deeply pastoral. And so when we get that list of kind of things to do, we see this next phrase here in verse 10, for whoever would love life and must eat. Now we hear that for and we go, okay, this means because. We read, we read the for as because. It's like this is the justification. This is why we need to do these things. But actually, this is something really, really cool that Peter is doing here. Now this is a reference, and not just a reference, it's actually literally the text of Psalm 34 verses 12 to 16. Okay, so, so Peter's basically saying when you're experiencing this suffering, do these things for reference to this psalm. And then he references this psalm, for whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. Again, it sounds like a list of things to do. I'm conscious of that, but wait for this. They must seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, if you are here as part of our psalm series that we did a couple of a month or so ago, we would be reminded, remember that psalms are not primarily theological statements, that is what is true about God, but rather psalms reveal the human condition. That's what psalms do. These are songs that reveal the human condition. a condition and what is true about us. And this is no exception. This particular psalm is connected to a story. And Peter knows this. And his audience will know this too. This isn't just a nice piece of a psalm that's used to validate or proof text an idea. It's like, hey, here's something that's true. And hey, by the way, here's a psalm that backs it up. Like that's Western thinking. That's not what Peter was doing here. Okay. This is a reference or a clue to a much bigger story. Check this out when I overlay Psalm 34. Look how similar it is. (laughs) Okay, it's almost identical. Almost identical. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies, turn from evil and do good, seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their cry, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So Peter is literally using the same psalm, right? This isn't some sort of proof text reference. He is taking that psalm and he is using a significant chunk of it, which again, is all well and good. I don't know if you've ever looked at your Bible and had to look at the top of Psalm 34, because this right here is what gives us a clue to what Peter is pointing out. There's a little part at the top of Psalm 34 from which this is taken. It's called the superscription. It's often those words at the beginning that basically, you know, say like, of David, um, you know, sung while ascending the stairs up to Jerusalem. Like these little kind of statements. And these actually, when you look at historical texts, these are not late additions. These were part of the original text very, very early on. Check out this superscription of Psalm 34. Of David when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, who drove him away and he left. you got to go with me on this. This thing's crazy what Peter is doing here. Okay? So, Peter is referring to a psalm that has a story attached. And from this psalm that has such beautiful language and sounds so uh, generous and and so, so, so gracious, 
comes from a story of David when he had to pretend to be insane before Abimelech. Now, we find this story in 1 Samuel chapter 21. Now, it's important to understand that in, uh, in, Sa- in 1 Samuel 21, um, the, the king is referred to as uh, a shish, but scholars of all traditions absolutely and overwhelmingly agree that this is the same guy. They just use a different name, maybe first name, last name, or whatever it is, just using a different title. So, Peter says, just tracing back, in the midst of this hostility and harassment, choose to do good. For that response points to this psalm written in this situation. Let's check out the situation. That day, David fled from Saul and went to Ashish, or who was Abimelech, king of Gath. But the servants of Ashish said to him, isn't this David? The king of the land, isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Ashish king of Gath. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Ashish said to his sermons, look at the man. He is insane. Why bring him to me? Am I so short of madmen that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? Right. Because of this situation, right, David wrote Psalm 34. This psalm that Peter then took that is filled with this incredible language around generosity and grace and responding well. This wasn't crafted by a man sitting on a throne in power and prestige with time on his hands. This wasn't written by a man who was removed from suffering and hostility. These words in Psalm 34 that Peter refers to in this letter were crafted by a man with saliva running down his beard, right? This is when David wrote this psalm as a result of this situation. Can you imagine what David must have been thinking when this took place? He has songs written about his victory over Goliath and the Philistines. He has literally been chosen by God as the next king. He has done everything that he was being asked to do, right? He was obedient to the nth degree. And where does he find himself? In front of the king of Gath, acting like a crazed madman. It really had come to this I've done all the right things, and here I am pretending to be crazy just to save myself. That's what's going on here. Like, David's done everything right, and yet here he is on the run, fearing for his life, acting like a madman. David, King David, was on the run, a foreigner to the Philistines. He had been obedient, he had been victorious, And this was still the result. Moments like this. And so it's stories like this that remind me over and over again that choosing the way of Jesus isn't always a ticket to an easy life. And sometimes that's what's communicated. Just because the way of Jesus is the best life does not make it the easiest life. And it certainly doesn't make a life that is void of injustice and suffering. Choosing to trust Jesus transforms us. It prepares us for life eternal of which we are heirs 
but in this temporary life, we will still suffer. And we will still feel like a foreigner. And we will still get the raw end of the stick, even when we have done everything right. And so, back to Peter. To a group of people who were feeling the heat. We've put our trust in Jesus and now we're experiencing this hostility, this harassment. We feel alone. We feel isolated. To a people who are experiencing these things, this was not just a list of things to do. The thing that Peter wanted to remind people in that moment was that you share in David's story. You know David, the hero? You know David, the victorious one? You know David, who was basically in line and and, and from David's line came Jesus? You know that amazing person that you hold in such high esteem? You share in his story. He was chosen and yet he was pursued. He was obedient and yet here he was being threatened. Solidarity. This is what Peter wanted to communicate to the people. You are not alone in your story. Before answers and action steps, you are not alone. Those people you hold in high esteem, they experienced it too. Even the greatest outside of Jesus experienced this too, doing all the right things, winning all the right victories, being obedient to God and yet finding himself with the residue of spit running down his beard as he crafted these words. Fingers bleeding from scratching the doors of the gates. He crafted these words, these words of trust. The people, first and foremost, needed solidarity. And with the remaining dribble on his beard and these bleeding fingers, he writes words like, whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their cry. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. It's this beautiful contrast with the crazed madman, how he was presenting, to hear these words. And they're words of trust. Words that we, in our times of suffering, need to be reminded of too. Because if David can do it, so can you. That's what Peter is saying. If David can do it, then so can you. You know, it's no accident that with this reference to King David, We hear these echoes of royal and priesthood coming through right from the beginning of Peter's letter. You are a royal priesthood. The story before this one in Samuel chapter 1, verse 21, literally has David eating the consecrated bread that was only for priests to eat, right? So 1 Samuel 21, he's doing the priest thing, right? He's doing the king thing. Like, this is no mistake. Peter is all over this in this letter. He's saying, you are not alone. People have gone before you and they have endured and you now hold them in esteem. It's all pointing back to these people who could so easily just wallow in their pain or who could just so quickly seek to move on with a band-aid solution 
and not actually feel like they had permission to feel that sense of injustice that they had experienced. Peter, one of these people, and I believe wants us to know tonight that when you do the right thing and then you suffer as a result, you are not alone. Before you try to work out why it happened and before you try to work out what the next steps are, just hear this. If you do the right thing and you suffered for it, you are not alone. David gets it. Joseph gets it. Jesus gets it. He could have used any of these references, but I love the fact that he chose a crazy King David just to remind people that they are like him in these moments. The heroes before you knew what you are feeling. God was with them and he is with you too. Deeply pastoral letter. A lot of heart. A lot of creativity. A lot of pointing back and a lot of reminding people that they are not alone. Next week, Mike is going to continue this conversation with the next step stuff. But I just wonder two things for us to draw from this, I believe, as Christians today, as followers of Jesus today. Number one, you might find yourself feeling pretty hot about a situation. You might just be carrying that right now. I've done everything right and I'm just feeling hot. Like, I don't want reasons and answers. I just want to know that I'm not alone. If that's you, hear these words from Peter. Be reminded that you are not alone. The second thing is you might be sitting with someone who's going through suffering. As Christians, I kind of hope that's what we do on a regular basis. We sit with people in the midst of their vulnerability. And there is always a temptation within us, and I'm guilty of this as anyone, in wanting to move someone forward to another step. You could just do this, or you could just think about this differently, or hey, just why don't you get unity of mind and be humble, you know? It's great there in 1 Peter. When actually before those steps, the thing we just need to remind people is that they're not alone. They're not alone in that suffering. And I believe that if we can communicate that, if we can demonstrate that, that God will use those moments to bring healing. Maybe it's for us. Maybe it's for someone else. But it is true. Let me pray. Now, God, we... Um, I'm just really conscious we did a bit of a deep dive tonight. Um, but God, uh, while we dive deep into the text and the story, we're reminded that so much pain can really just sit on the surface, um, sometimes remaining unaddressed. Sometimes we put a Band-Aid on top and yet the wound hasn't closed and it's kind of bleeding around and we don't know what to do. I want to pray that in these times, Lord, that we would be reminded that we're not alone. Just as Peter reminded these Christians in Asia Minor. God, there's going to be some people here tonight, Lord, who are feeling like a foreigner, maybe in their workplace or maybe even in their family. Um, 
I want to pray, Lord, that you would remind them that obedience and promise and calling and that missional initiative to be a royal priesthood is still on them. doesn't always mean it's going to be easy, but you are faithful. And so God, give them the strength to push forward and speak openly and honestly to love and live with generosity and gratitude and integrity through word or deed, pointing people to you. And so God, do a work in our heart. Help us to dig a little bit deeper. For you want to do a restoration in our hearts. We know this. In Jesus' name, amen.